We're going to be in Psalm 24 this morning. Psalm chapter 24. And Psalm chapter 24 is broken up into three sections. And so we're just going to look briefly at a couple of the sections and we're going to emphasize, focus, spend most of our time on the last section. Psalm 24, the first section, this psalm is about the king of glory. This text is one of my favorite Easter texts in all of Scripture. The King of Glory, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You either believe this section or you don't. And I know we're just jumping right into that, <laughs> and that kind of sounds aggressive, but the psalmist here is assuming we all believe it. And I'm just going to assume that we believe it, even though I know I'm going to speak as though we all believe it, even though I know there may be guests here with us who don't necessarily believe that God himself created the heavens and the earth. But we're going to speak this morning as though we believe it, and I believe it, and the Church of Jesus Christ believes this section. And if you really believe it, you will really act like it. If you believe that God created everything that exists, including you, and that he therefore owns everything that exists, including you, then you will not just acknowledge his reality or his existence, you will also submit to his reign. Because if he actually made this place, he owns this place. And if he owns this place, he's the boss or to put it the way the Bible puts it more frequently, though it does occasionally refer to him as the boss, he's the king. And if he's the only one who created this place, then he's the only king who really matters. And if you believe that the God of the Bible is the only king who matters, your whole life will be consumed by worshiping and obeying and serving and loving this king. And if your life is not consumed by worshiping and obeying this king, you don't believe any of it right out of the gates. Seems like that escalates pretty quickly, and it does because that's what this psalm is doing. It's lifting our heads and forcing our eyes to look up and fix their attention on the one reality that matters. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah God, is the rightful king of the universe. Amen. And that's what Easter is all about. Easter is all about this king, that's the first section. We're going to move into the second section of this psalm. You can follow along with me if you want to in your Bibles. It starts in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. We can stop right there. This section, the first section of the psalm, tells us that God alone is the rightful king of the universe. This section, second section of this psalm tells us that this king dwells behind closed gates. He dwells behind closed gates, or as the apostle Paul will write to Timothy later, in unapproachable light. This is where this king dwells. And who could ever dare approach the king of the universe? Right after that opening, that psalm moves to that question, who could approach him? And the logical answer is nobody. Nobody. You're forced, actually, by this psalm to answer that question that way. Nobody. 
only those who are perfectly innocent and righteous. And who among us is perfectly innocent and righteous? I'm not. Certainly not. Thank you. There's two of us. And isn't that the way that this works? Isn't that the way that this knowledge of God often works for us? We become aware of who God is. We catch a glimpse of his glory and his splendor and how mighty and how awesome he is. And as this knowledge of our God settles over our minds and our hearts, he becomes like the sun itself, too bright and too big to comprehend, let alone approach This is the consistent experience of people who have been given a glimpse of God throughout Scripture. When they see him, they are immediately confronted by their own sinfulness. It's as if when they see a glimpse of who God is, they also immediately see this massive gulf between them and this great God. And he's unapproachable. He's out of reach. They immediately recognize the gulf They immediately see themselves as mere sinful humans against the holy, blazing, resplendent king of the universe. The prophet Isaiah is given a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, and he immediately says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone in the presence of this king. In two different places, the same thing happens to the prophet Ezekiel. He's given a vision, not of God, but only the glory of the Lord. And he immediately falls on his face like a dead man. What's interesting is that Jesus himself often has the same effect on people. When he's here in the gospels and he's living his life, doing his earthly ministry, this happens to people. Long before he came as a baby in the manger, his appearing would cause people to fall on their faces. Even in the Old Testament when he would show up, and he would show up pre-incarnation. We just finished a series on the Trinity, and in that series, Emmanuel showed us that in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appears, it's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. And we don't have time this morning to look at all the places where he shows up, but I want to briefly look at one. It's in Joshua 5, 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, getting ready to siege Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Can you just picture that scene? Joshua's getting ready to face his first major battle as commander of the people of God, the army of the people of God. And this is a big battle. This is the most fortified city they've ever seen. Massive walls. And Joshua, on the eve of this battle, is wondering how in the world is this little fighting force that just wandered in from the desert going to take this city? And he lifts up his eyes and sees a man standing with a sword drawn. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Even in his earthly ministry, Jesus would occasionally have this impact on people. They'd see him for who he actually was. 
and they would have no control over what would happen next. They would fall over as though they were dead. In Matthew 17, this happens to some of his closest disciples. Matthew, uh, I'm, I'm not not Matthew, Peter, James, and John. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Remember this story? He goes up on a mountain, and all of a sudden, it's like the sun bursts forth from Jesus. It's blinding light, and their immediate reaction is to fall on their faces and become, the text says, terrified. The apostle Paul catches a glimpse of the risen Christ and immediately falls off his horse flat on his face and is blinded by the glory. Later, Paul would write to Timothy and say he dwells in unapproachable, inaccessible light. To see him is to be blinded by him. In Revelation 1, John is caught up in a vision, and he sees the risen Jesus in all of his glory. And he doesn't say, bro. (laughs) He doesn't offer the risen Jesus a fist bump. You know what he does? He falls to the ground as though he was a dead man. This is somebody who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus. And he falls to the ground as though he were a dead man. I don't know everyone in this room. But even for those of you I do know, I don't know what you're carrying in with you this morning. But isn't the question at the heart of Psalm 24 common to all of us? Who can possibly approach this God? Have you ever found yourself wrestling with that question? I have. Usually it's after knowing that I have fallen into sin and wondering if maybe this time I've fallen too far or too many times. And I see a glimpse of God, but I know that he's holy, and I know that I'm sinful, and I feel the gulf between us. I feel out of reach. Have you ever been there? I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's conflict with somebody. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's chronic depression or anxiety. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's loss or a diagnosis And you feel like there's this gulf. And all of a sudden, God seems unapproachable. Have you been there? This psalm is a psalm of ascension, even though it's not in the section of psalms that are officially called psalms of ascension. And psalms of ascension are psalms that the people of God would sing as they were traveling to the temple. The temple sat on a hill. As they were traveling to the temple to offer their sacrifices, they would sing these psalms. And this was one of them. It'd be sung regularly by the worshipers in Jerusalem, and it was likely written to commemorate King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They'd sing, they'd sing lines of this psalm together, chant them over and over together to one another to remind themselves of what they're doing. And isn't that what we do every Sunday as we sing? Didn't we do that this morning as we sang? We sang to God, but we also sang to one another, reminding ourselves of this central, ultimate reality, that there is a king in this universe, and he reigns over all, and he's alive. And this is what the people of God have done. They've sung to each other to remind themselves of what's true and what matters. Then once they reached the temple, they would all stop. They would stop at the temple because those gates are closed. And you can't go in. The people of God would stop and only a few would go in. The priests would go in. But even as they entered the temple, eventually they would stop. And only one of them, the high priest would go in. 
to the presence of God where his glory dwells, and only if he was spotless and upright. He would wear bells on his clothes, and he would have a rope tied around his waist. Why? Because if he entered in an unworthy manner, he would immediately be killed. He would fall down dead in the glory of God. That would happen. And the people, the other priests would be listening. Are the, are the bells still jingling? Is this still, is this still going? And if it didn't, they had a rope to pull them out. They couldn't enter. They couldn't enter. Everybody had to stop at these gates. You don't go in. You don't go in. Unapproachable. But then in this section of unapproachability, high standards, we see a little hint of something. And these little hints are all throughout the Old Testament, promising, pointing to something better, pointing to good news, It says this, verse 5, he will receive, this person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He doesn't have righteousness. He will somehow receive righteousness, meaning somehow, some way, we will be able to cross this gulf. We'll be able to get across. Somehow, God will one day be approachable. He'll give us righteousness, and then we can enter these gates. Then the gates will be open. It's interesting that as you look at these stories of people in scripture who fell on their faces, oftentimes as this reality sets in on them and they're aware of their own sinfulness and they fall to the ground as though they're dead or they put their hand like Isaiah over his mouth and says, I can't, I have unclean lips. Oftentimes God will do something about that problem. He will remedy the situation. It's as if he says, no, 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 no. It's okay. You're safe. You're safe. With Isaiah, He sent an angel with a coal to touch his lips and purify him, symbolically purify him so he could stand in the presence of God. God is saying, no, Isaiah, I want you here. I have called you in. I have invited you here. Same thing happens to Ezekiel. Ezekiel falls over as though he's dead. And in both places, Ezekiel says, the spirit of the Lord said to me, stand. And the spirit of the Lord entered me and I stood. Ezekiel, no, no, get up. Get up. You're supposed to be here. You're welcome here. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' followers fell down as though they were dead, what does Jesus say to them? He comes to them, he says, no, get up, get up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are welcome here. You're welcome. Well, how does that happen? If only the best of the best can enter, what hope do I have of entering these gates Jewish historians suggest that after the Jewish exile, which is when all of the nation of Israel had forsaken God and been led away into captivity into Babylon, they were one day restored and they returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. And after rebuilding the temple, they chose seven psalms to sing every day of the week. Every day had its own psalm. And this psalm, Psalm 24, was one of those psalms. And it was reserved for Sunday. So this psalm was sung recited congregationally on Sundays. This would mean that on Palm Sunday, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone was shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the priests in the temple were singing, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That was on Palm Sunday, but by Good Friday, Jesus, the only king of the universe, 
And if this morning you're unsure if that's who he said he was, just read the Gospels, and he makes it plain that that first section of Psalm 24 is about him. He is the God who created everything. In fact, he's the God who gives all of us life and breath and everything. That's him. That's him. But by Good Friday, this king was hanging on a cross. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look like the end of Psalm 24, where you have this triumphal entry. It doesn't look like Palm Sunday anymore, because now this king of the universe is hanging, bleeding, naked on a cross. Can you imagine the scene in heaven as the king of the universe, the general of the army of heaven? That's how he introduced himself to Joshua. I'm the captain of the hosts of heaven. As that general was hanging, dying on a cross, can you imagine what was on the minds of his angels as they saw their commander, the mightiest warrior they've ever seen, for the first time in all of history, being subjected to what looked like defeat. That's what it looked like. What are they doing to him? What? He came for them. He came for them. What are they doing to them? This is why scripture says the angels long to look into the things pertaining to salvation, because it doesn't make any sense. This is our, this is our warrior. What are they doing to him? Remember, Jesus said if he had wanted to, he could have said the word, and immediately tens of thousands of angelic warriors would have been at his side, overthrowing Rome, turning the world upside down, and getting him off the cross. If he wanted to, he could have summoned them. And I imagine they were saying, oh, just open those gates. Just open those gates. They have no idea who you are. They have no idea what they've done. Open the gates. We'll be there. But he kept him closed as he was hanging, suffering, dying. He held the gates of heaven shut and took it. For a long time, Christian preachers have seen Psalm 24 as part of a trilogy, part of a trilogy made up of Psalm 22, Psalm 23, thank you, Kitty, and Psalm 24. I told you I sung my lungs out this morning. <clears throat> it's a trilogy. In Psalm 22, we hear the words that Jesus screamed out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what Psalm 22 is all about. It's about the agony that our champion suffered while he was hanging on the cross. He says, they've pierced me. They're dividing my clothes. They're gambling over my possessions. This is what they're doing to me. That's Psalm 22. The whole psalm is a cry of anguish and despair. And on this side of the cross, we recognize that it is divine anguish and despair. And in Psalm 23, we see that the Lord is our shepherd. But in John 10, Jesus says that psalm is talking about him. He says, I am that good shepherd. And he goes on to tell us something that Psalm 23 doesn't. This good shepherd, Jesus, doesn't just walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, though that's in chapter 23. The good shepherd actually dies there in the valley, giving his life for the sheep. And right there, 
right there in the valley of the shadow of death. The good shepherd defeats death on its own terms, on its own territory, in its own house. This is what Jesus was doing. Forever banishing its shadow. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Just like David the shepherd boy killed a lion and a bear when they threatened his sheep, our shepherd killed death itself. How? How? By chasing death all the way to the grave and driving his sword through death's heart. That's how he did it. That's what happened on the cross. That's what happened in the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. On the cross, Jesus took your sin. Whatever's in that gulf, whatever seems to be separating God from you and making him seem unapproachable, he took all of it. He took all of it on himself. And the scriptures tell us he nailed all of it to the cross. He got off the cross. Your sin didn't. It didn't. And so now there are no chains that he can't break. There's no addiction he can't help you overcome. There's no sins you can't be forgiven of. There is nothing that can stand in the way of the king's love for you. Nothing. He's no longer unapproachable. In fact, now in Jesus, God has become the most approachable person who has ever lived. On the cross, he took your sin and even your death to the grave. And on Easter, he gave you his righteousness and his everlasting, unquenchable life. The gulf is gone. The tomb is empty. And out of that tomb flows life after life after life. If the cross and the grave were the death of death, coming out of the grave, Jesus gave you life upon life upon life upon life. This is what he bought for you. He has made you righteous And he has made you alive like no one else ever could. He has qualified you to enter the gates. So section three of Psalm 24, the resurrected king, Jesus Christ, opened the gates for all time. And this was the text that I chose to have read this morning, and we'll read it together. Psalm 24, verse 7. You don't have to read it out loud. Psalm 24, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. This Matt Champlin's grandfather and his father, and I mean, he's a generation, he comes from generations of missionaries, but his grandfather, Dr. Daryl Champlin, was a missionary who I had the privilege of hearing speak. And I heard him preach on this psalm over 20 years ago, and I still remember saying, him saying this. When the scriptures refer to the Lord here, it's using Lord Sabaoth. And he said, this is God's fighting name. This is his fighting name. This is our warrior God here. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty, undefeated in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Captain of all of the heavenly armies. This is him. The Lord of hosts. He's at the gates. Fling them open. He is the King of glory. Can you imagine that scene? As Jesus 
comes back from the dead and comes back to take his throne. Can you imagine what heaven was like? We can't. We really can't. We've never seen anything like it. We get little glimpses, little tiny glimpses of it here and there where we see crowds going wild and losing their minds, but they're just dim shadows of what actually happened when the king walked up to the gates. Because for the first time in all of history, as the angels are overlooking the towers of the gates of the city of God, they look out and they see a man, a man standing there. Not an angelic warrior, not a superhuman, a man as human as I am standing before you today, a man as human as you are sitting in your seats. They see a man standing there and they say, open the gates. Those gates have never opened for a man. They have never, ever opened for somebody like you or me. They've never been open for a man. Open the gates. That's the cry that rings out. And you can just imagine all of heaven catching its breath so that the king of glory may come in and the return from the people who are in in charge of the gates. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king? The last we saw him, he was hanging on a cross. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. As he hung on the cross, he wasn't just dying. He was fighting for you. He was fighting for you, defeating, overcoming, forgiving, pardoning all of your sins and defeating the number one enemy you have, which is death. That Hebrews says holds you in slavery to fear. He killed that enemy. Truly, he is alone, mighty in battle. We've never seen anybody mightier. Open the gates. It's fitting that this psalm comes on the heels of Psalm 23, because Psalm 23 tells you what Jesus is to you, and Psalm 24 tells you what Jesus is for you. In Psalm 23, he's kind and gentle and patient, and that is the essence of his heart to you. In Psalm 24, he's fearsome and mighty and fierce, and that's what he is on your behalf today. To you, he's a shepherd, but for you, he's a warrior. To you, he's the gentle, sacrificial lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, but for you, he's the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, ferociously defending you from evil. To you, he's safe. For you, he's anything but safe. To you, he's the valiant prince who raids the castle dungeon to free you from your chains. But for you, he's the dragon slayer, crushing the head of your captor beneath his heel. To you, he's a friend who stands by you despite all of your shortcomings and imperfections, and he knows all of them. For you, he's an advocate with your father, removing those shortcomings and imperfections as far as the east is from the west. To you, he's an older brother. 100% human and as close as your closest family. But for you, he's the God of the universe. 100% divine, holding all things together, including you, by the word of his power. 
To you as he hangs dying on the cross, he's your substitute, dying your death in your place. But for you, as he comes up out of the tomb, victorious over death and hell, he's your victor, giving you life that nobody can take away from you. To you, he's the way, the truth, and the life. For you, he's the only way to the Father. To you, he's Good Friday, bearing your grief and your sorrow and joining you in the darkness of despair. But for you, he's Easter Sunday, bringing you joy and celebration and calling you out into light and life. And in Jesus, the best of the best of the best, you have access to the God who dwells in unapproachable light. With his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for you to answer the question at the heart of Psalm 24. Who will ascend? Who will stand in this holy place? You can. You can. I can. Now we can enter the presence of God as though he were our father because he is. We can stand in his presence with boldness and confidence, Scripture tells us, because he has called us to come He would say, no, I want you here. I paid a lot for you to be here. Jesus made a way for this unrighteous, unworthy, unclean sinner of sinners to stand in the presence of God himself and not immediately be killed, but instead feel his loving, merciful, all-forgiving embrace. Oh, providence. Lift up your heads and let the doors swing wide, that your king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, providence, and swing wide the doors of your hearts, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, our champion and defender. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. Mm, Father, thank you for Easter. Thank you that our champion did not stay in the grave. Thank you that the cross was not the end, but the pinnacle of the battle, and he won. Thank you that he's mighty, and he is for us. He's for us. God, we, we can't even imagine what we have gained by what Jesus gave for us. But the little bit that we do understand and catch, we worship you for this. We worship you for your son. We worship him as the king above all kings, the only reality that matters in all of the universe. Father, I pray this morning that as we go out, we would go out in resurrection, life, and joy, and power. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.